Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Hello, everyone. We've missed you, but Across the Street is back after a bit of a hiatus with a brand new homegrown Durham VA production team. So before we start this episode, I do just want to take a quick minute to thank Chris Camacho in the AV department for picking up this project and also wanted to thank our prior team, Susanna and Bridget, for all of the hard work that they've put into this. Jumping right in today, I am so excited to talk to Dr. Darsh Kothari. For those of you who have not met him yet, Dr. Kathari is the director of the pancreas program at the Durham VA, the residency education lead for the GI division, and an assistant professor in the Duke School of Medicine. He serves as a mentor for residents pursuing QI projects related to acute pancreatitis and is also the medical director for the North Carolina chapter of the National Pancreas Foundation. And from what I hear, I feel like that's a fairly modest and short version of all the things that Dr. Kothari does. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. So based on that bio, it probably won't surprise anyone that today we're going to be talking about the inpatient management of acute pancreatitis, specifically on the general medicine wards. It's a common admission diagnosis, but the hospital course can go in a number of different ways. So Dr. Kathari is going to kind of walk us through how to assess and manage these patients on the wards. Uh, so Dr. Kathari, let's start from the beginning. How do we diagnose pancreatitis? In 2012, a bunch of gastroenterologists got together uh, in Atlanta to be to call now the revised Atlanta criteria uh, for the diagnosis of acute pancreatitis. And that requires two of the following three criteria. Patients should have severe acute onset epigastric pain that radiates to the back. It's a key feature of the presentation for acute pancreatitis. This is very, very classic for acute pancreatitis. The next is biochemical evidence of acute pancreatitis. What I mean by that is elevations in lipase or amylase that are greater, greater than three times the upper limit of normal. This should clearly be something that patients should have as soon as they arrive to the emergency room. The third criteria is imaging findings. Usually that means a CAT scan. You only need two of those three. So that means that you don't actually need cross-sectional imaging or any kind of imaging for that matter to make the diagnosis. So if you have the classic abdominal pain and lipase that's greater than three times limit of the normal, then you really don't even need cross-sectional imaging. I usually advocate for cross-sectional if you are worried about an alternative life-threatening diagnosis. Patients present without pain, even if they've got elevated lipase, even if they've got imaging that tells me that they've got pancreatitis, I would try to be finding another reason for what their presentation is. Because oftentimes it is very clear when patients have pancreatitis, it is not subtle. Their symptoms are very severe. And usually it's those symptoms that bring them to our emergency room in the first place. And so let's say that we have that patient who, you know, maybe doesn't necessarily need the CT scan, but is, we're pretty sure has a diagnosis of acute pancreatitis. We've made a clinical diagnosis. What are our next steps? You know, even in 2021, our early strategies for management haven't changed over the course of 70 years, but we cannot undervalue this early evaluation and management because this actually is what predicts what the rest of their course is going to be like. And I cannot underestimate the importance of early aggressive hydration. What I mean by that is good IVs, 
with some form of crystalloid, whether it's normal saline or lactated ringers. If we look at just patients with acute pancreatitis, we believe that lactated ringers is probably better because it has a more physiologic pH. We know that if we put acinar cells in an acidic environment, much like that of a normal saline, we actually can activate trypsin and actually potentiate acute pancreatitis. And so that is the that is the physiologic basis for the need or the reason to use lactated ringers. The other piece of this is how much and how fast. 30 years ago, sort of the set it and forget it model, give them 100 cc's an hour and just come back and sort of see how they're doing. Turns out that that's probably not enough because every patient's not the same size. We also know though that if we are over aggressive, we can lead to, to pulmonary edema, to intra-abdominal hypertension. And that can actually be devastating for the patient in and of itself. So it really does require to, to have very close monitoring. And one of the things that I usually look for are hematocrit, abdominal pain, as well as what their belly exam is. Okay. And if their hematocrit is trending down, that's actually a good thing, right? Because if their hematocrit is going up, that means that they're becoming more hemoconcentrated. If their abdominal pain isn't improving, well, then that means that perhaps they're actually getting more inflammatory changes with their pancreas. And most importantly, if their abdominal exam is worsening, that probably means that they're having worsening inflammatory milieu. The other things you can look for are surrogates of end organ damage. So you're looking for BUN and creatinine, mental status, and of course, oxygenation. Other than hydration, the other big important piece is of course, symptom management. You know, getting on top of patients' pain is really important. Getting on top of patients' nausea is really important. I usually um, advocate for patients to, to use IV bolus narcotics for their patients, but you can also consider using patient-controlled analgesia or PCAs. That can be actually really helpful for patients who are on the floor who need regular management of their pain because that is going to be one of the biggest obstacles that teams will face. As an aside, I will also say that I... I strongly advise against trending lipases in the hospital because it does not prognosticate what's going to happen to them. So you make the diagnosis with the lipase, congratulations, don't check it anymore. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you kind of touched on some of the clinical markers that we will be watching as people progress through their hospitalization. And so that kind of leads well into the next question of what exactly do changes in those markers indicate? What are some of the really serious complications of acute pancreatitis that we should be looking for? That's also a really important question. So let's just step back and think about the natural history of patients with acute pancreatitis. So if we take all comers, about 85% will have what we call interstitial acute pancreatitis or edematous pancreatitis, and they won't have any evidence of end organ damage. And so they'll be classified as mild acute pancreatitis. And they will improve with simple measures of hydration and symptom management. And so their mortality is less than 2%. That's the majority of patients. The minority of patients, about 15 to 25% will have necrotizing pancreatitis. These are the patients that we tend to worry a little bit more of because there's, of course, death of the gland. Of this group of patients, two-thirds will have transient end organ damage, that can be mental status changes, but largely that usually means either hypoxia or acute renal failure. This is what we uh, term moderately severe acute pancreatitis. Because they've had transient end organ damage, their mortality is slightly higher than that of mild acute pancreatitis and about 5%.
the smallest group of patients are the ones that, of course, are going to be the sickest. And those are the patients with persistent organ damage. That's what we call severe acute pancreatitis. And these patients may also have local complications, including fluid collections and or pseudoaneurysms and things like that. It's important to recognize that these are the sickest patients because they're likely to also develop infectious complications. Whether or not a patient goes from interstitial and acute pancreatitis to necrotic pancreatitis is largely dependent on how aggressive you are up front with hydration and early reassessment. And so that's why I go back to what I was saying before, which is you have to be aggressive with giving patients fluids and you have to be aggressive at following up with them. So you mentioned infectious complications. How do we know when it's time to start antibiotics? This is also really an important point. In 2018, the American Gastro Association put out a guideline for the early management of acute pancreatitis. And many of the recommendations I'm giving you today are from there. But one of the pieces that I want to highlight specifically from that is that they actually advise against antibiotics for patients with acute pancreatitis upfront. The initial dogma used to be that if you have if you have concern for acute pancreatitis with necrosis, you should be giving prophylactic antibiotics. It turns out that that came from a single study that looked at patients retrospectively on whether or not they received antibiotics and what happened with them going forward. The antibiotic that those patients got were all carbapenems, and it just happened to be in them. That's why that recommendation for a carbapenem came to be. And so patients who require antibiotics, they are doing well, they are improving, and then something happens they suddenly decompensate with a fever. They suddenly mount a white count. They redevelop SIRS. Those are the patients that I really think about. Should A, be getting additional imaging, and B, if you're worried about antibiotics, you should be considering it. Now, the type of antibiotic, it's really all important to recognize that for the most part, this is gut flora. So you can get away with a fluoroquinolone. You don't need to be giving patients sort of these big guns you know, piperacillin tazobactam is, is reasonable too. Um, something that has anaerobic coverage is certainly also reasonable. But frankly, ciprofloxacin is just as good. And so you don't really need to be chasing these high-end, really expensive uh, antibiotics that can honestly just breed resistance. That's a really important learning point for us. It sounds like not everybody needs antibiotics right out of the gate. But if someone doesn't read the textbook and their clinical course is not following what you would expect it to, that's when you should go back and reassess. I would say so. And if you are worried about a patient coming in with acute pancreatitis and they also appear infected, review their CAT scan for evidence of complications related to acute pancreatitis, like a fluid collection. If they don't have those complications, then I would rule out other things, UTI, pneumonia, cellulitis, all important and common things. Get cultures, do all that good stuff. But if they are not hypotensive, requiring pressors, I don't think antibiotics are necessary. And I would say it is rare, incredibly rare for a patient to develop an infectious complication early on. It just can't happen that quickly. It's going to take weeks for that to happen. That's a really great perspective. Yeah, thank you. So let's say that we've gotten lucky. We did really excellent fluid resuscitation. We held off on antibiotics because our patient didn't need it. And they're starting to turn a corner with analgesia and time. So when is the right time to feed them? Come on, guys. Everyone likes food. Everyone needs food, right? So when do we feed them? When do we not feed them? How should we feed them? How do we not? There's so much debate over this. It's simple. Feed them, feed them early, and feed them something solid. Don't order a clear liquid diet because guess what? There is fat all up in that broth. And actually, 
prolongs hospitalizations. And that's true at the Durham VA. We don't know about other hospitals. But importantly, the quality metric is for all patients to at least have some diet order within 24 hours of admission. And so what I tell my teams to do is start a low-fat solid diet and just see what they eat. If you go in on day one and they don't want to eat, okay, that's fine. See them again at day two. Still don't want to eat? Okay, fine. Come back day three, they still don't want to eat? Then you say, okay, now we're going to have to have this conversation. You haven't eaten in three days. You need nutrition. Here are the reasons why. Don't eat. Digestion's open. Bacteria goes from gut to dead space. Dead space then gets infected. You get sicker, right? So that's why we want to maintain gut integrity. So if they on 72 hours don't want to eat, then you start saying, we're going to place a feeding tube. Does the feeding tube need to be post-pyloric? Turns out probably not, especially if it's just going to be trickle feed, but you need to start nutrition pretty soon. And for that reason, I almost always tell people to get nutrition involved early, do, do calorie counts or, you know, get them involved with low fat education, things like that. It's a really important uh, to educate patients on what, what kind of diet they should be eating when they leave. But most importantly, it's important for us to provide them with a diet that they're going to tolerate at home. So now it's time to think about what caused the pancreatitis in the first place and whether there's anything that we need to act on this hospitalization. So what do we need to do before this patient is discharged? So if we take all patients who have acute pancreatitis, the number one cause in America, about 35, 30 to 35% will be gallstones. So it's really important we rule out gallstones. Okay. There are two simple, easy tests that increase our pretest probability for acute pancreatitis from gallstones. A, their ALT is up. And B, they've got gallstones on, on an ultrasound. Every single patient, regardless of if they have a CT scan, should get a right upper quadrant ultrasound. Turns out that the right upper quadrant ultrasound is more sensitive at determining gallstones than, than CAT scans are. So the AGA put out hospital quality metrics for acute gallstone pancreatitis. Get the gallbladder out. During that admission, we know from 2015 and earlier studies that if we get the gallbladder out during that admission, the likelihood of something bad happening to them goes down. And so get a surgery consult. Even if they're not going to get in on that week and they get discharged and come back the next week, fine. It should be within four weeks of their discharge. But if you can do it while they're admitted, do it. The second most common acute cause of acute pancreatitis is alcohol. So how much alcohol does one have to drink? So I think it's important for us to ask the questions very specifically. Have you drank more than five drinks a day for five years? If that's the answer, then they're, then they're at risk for acute pancreatitis. But that is to say that it's not usually one episode of binge drinking that causes acute pancreatitis. Now, there are some genetic predispositions that reduce that sensitivity. And so some patients may require less alcohol to cause acute pancreatitis. But if you take all comers, it's about five drinks a day for five years. Additionally, tobacco use actually increases that risk. And they both do the same thing. They cause ductal and acinar cell scarring, which then ultimately results in sluggish pancreatic enzymes resulting in activation and digestion of the gland. So that is to say that these patients probably have underlying chronic pancreatitis. I think it's important for every patient to get a calcium. I think it's important for every patient to get a triglyceride. Understanding that triglycerides are an acute phase reactant, we expect it to be elevated. The people we are worried about who have super triglyceride-induced acute pancreatitis usually have a fasting baseline level of triglycerides that are greater than 1,000. But the reason I tell patients to get it, or I tell teams to get it in their first index uh, admission is, is is 
if, to make sure that's not 12,000, 15,000, something that's crazy elevated. But those are the things that I usually tell teens to do upfront. Also tell teens to review the medication list to make sure there aren't new medication that were recently started. You know, things like azathioprine, 6-MP, some of the older HIV medications caused acute pancreatitis with direct toxin, but the rest are all idiosyncratic reactions. And so we always fault thiazides, we always fault lisinopril, but turns out that there's actually not great data on either of those. And so you just have to be careful. If you have a patient who started a medication and then within weeks, they've developed acute pancreatitis, it's, a, it's reasonable to stop. But I don't stop every patient's high blood pressure medications if they've been on it for years and all of a sudden developed acute pancreatitis because it's unlikely to be the cause. And so oftentimes we end up sending autoimmune panels. We end up getting MRCPs on these patients. Are we overdoing those tests? So let's start with the MRI. I think of the MRI as being helpful in two ways. One, it's when you're concerned that a patient has cholelithiasis, gallstones in the common bile duct, but you can't see it on ultrasound, and the LFTs are not high enough to warrant an ERCP and they're not getting better, right? So they don't, they're not cholangitic, but they're also not normal. The second time though, is really in the outpatient world. When, when this flare has subsided, I want to make sure that there isn't underlying ductal abnormalities, space occupying lesions, cancer, other things, chronic pancreatitis that could have predisposed them to acute pancreatitis. The other question that you ask is about autoimmune pancreatitis. And I'll just start by saying that, remember that autoimmune pancreatitis is a very rare thing. Now, for whatever reason, Duke and the VA have amassed a large cohort of patients with acute pancreatitis, and we have had many presentations of autoimmune pancreatitis. But the typical presentation for autoimmune pancreatitis is obstructive jaundice in a 60 to 70-year-old male who smokes. So basically, it looks, smells, feels like cancer. It is not the cause of acute pancreatitis. In fact, most patients don't who have IgG4 related autoimmune pancreatitis never present with acute pancreatitis. They present with obstructive jaundice. The type of autoimmune pancreatitis that can present with acute pancreatitis is the one that's associated with inflammatory bowel disease. And that actually has no association with IgG4 disease. IgG4 subclasses cost about $250. It's not a cheap test. Let's be mindful with how much we're spending in the hospital and not ordering it unless it's absolutely necessary. And the time I would say it's necessary is if you have a prototypical appearance on, on CAT scan, which is a diffusely enlarged pancreas with a hypoattenuating rim around the, the pancreas. So it looks kind of like a really engorged sausage with this, with this halo around it. And I would also say because the presentation and the entity is so rare, it should be under the direction of, of the GI team, I think. I am loving the cost-conscious care tidbits that you're dropping. This is awesome. So I guess what I'm hearing in my attempt to summarize is there's a lot of workup that needs to be done for patients with acute pancreatitis, but it doesn't necessarily all have to be in the hospital. How many of these patients do you think should see a pancreas specialist in the outpatient setting? It's a good question. So I guess that kind of gets back to what are the causes, right? And are we missing something? Because truthfully, that's what we're getting at. Like what, what caused it? Is it something bad that caused it? And is it going to happen again? But 10 to 
15% will not have any identifiable cause, right? And so what I usually tell teams is that if you've ruled out drugs, you've ruled out gallstones and alcohol, it's reasonable for that. And, and they've had a relatively mild course. You know, you say that, you tell patients that, look, we don't know what caused it. There's a 20 to 30% risk that's going to happen again to you in your life. But there's not a necessary reason to go see a pancreatologist. The one caveat is that if they are over 40, which the majority of our veterans are, they should get an MRI once they're done with it, what, six weeks after. And that's really just to rule out pancreatic cancer. You know, pancreatic cancer incidence is on the rise, although the prevalence is still relatively low. 12 and 100,000, but we know that patients can present as acute pancreatitis as their in initial presentation. We also know that uh, the incidence and the prevalence of cystic neoplasms are rising, and we know that they can also present as acute pancreatitis. So it's reasonable for patients to get an MRI. Now, whether or not that's with a pancreas specialist, not necessary, but I think that if it provides patients and providers with greater reinsurance, I think it's always reasonable to send it, send it to the GI division or the, you know, a pancreas specialist. Uh, okay, Dr. Kothari, this was so educational. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and your wisdom on this subject that you've already dedicated so much of your time and your energy to. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on this episode. If anybody wants to come visit us down in the GI unit, we'd love to have you. All right, I'm coming down. I'll see you soon. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for joining us. For more questions on this topic, please refer to your Durham VA curriculum website and see some of the references that Dr. Kathari mentioned in this episode. See you next time. And as always, the views and opinions expressed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Durham VA or the Veterans Health Administration.